To me, a bold one is not somebody who is the greatest in their craft. The bold one is not the person that achieves ultimate excellence. Those are not, those to me are not descriptors. To me, a bold one is somebody that um, is changes the status quo, that they are, they are walking into their arena and they change how the game is played. And to me, that is the criteria of the bold one. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Unleashed, the fastest hour on the internet, where every episode we feature a best-selling author or world-renowned thought leader, all in the name of helping you elevate your leadership impact. I'm your host, Jeff Tetz, and I want to thank our season sponsor, PowerEd. PowerEd is an award-winning division of Athabasca University who partners with organizations looking for impactful online learning solutions. Their on-demand online offerings include leadership, project management, artificial intelligence ethics, digital transformation, embracing allyship and inclusion, and digital wellness. Check out the team from Athabasca University at athabascau.ca. My guest today is Sean Canungo. Sean is a globally recognized innovation strategist and best-selling author. He previously spent 12 years at Deloitte working closely with leaders to better plan for opportunities associated with disruptive innovation. Sean is a partner with Queen and Rook where he advises leading organizations and executives on disruptive trends. His work and interviews have been featured in The Globe and Mail, The Guardian, CBC and CTV. He's been recognized as Edify's top 40 under 40 and in 2021, he was named in Forbes as the best virtual keynote speaker I've ever seen. And that's not just a review from his mother. Sean's content on innovation has garnered millions of views, respectively, across LinkedIn, TikTok, YouTube, and Facebook. He joins me today to chat about his best-selling debut book, The Bold Ones, which offers a playbook for individuals to become bolder, to push their careers and companies forward. Sean, welcome to Unleashed. I'm so... <laughs> excited about this conversation. I love the book, The Bold Ones. And Sean, I got to I got to ask you, man, like I've, I've known you for uh, for a handful of years now. It's been such a pleasure to watch your trajectory and to watch your continued development and growth. Incredible. And it didn't slow down uh, one bit in the pandemic. And the thing that's different about you now from the last time I saw you is you are a best selling author now. What does that feel like? <laughs> it's been it's been really really humbling it's been very um I, I did not expect the just the love and just people coming out of the woodwork talking about the book you know to be honest with you I I've been doing this thing where I've been putting out video content for the last you know number of years and you know video is instantaneous you get the feedback right away you know you 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 can see if that video pops or not but writing a book is years and years of work crafting these stories putting it all together and then you have no idea how the reaction is going to be and, and it could be a flop it, it could be a hit and i've just been overwhelmed with just the messages that I've been getting from folks that are not in my network, that I have never met in my entire life, that are sharing the book, that are buying the books for others. It's been, it's been the most um, unbelievable experience that I've I've ever had. So I just, it, it, it's been, it's been great. And I need to take a second to like step back and be grateful and and reread all these messages because it's been, um, it's been incredible. But I do want to talk about the book that has actually been written here, which is yours, The Bold Ones. Uh, what an engaging read that is uh, from cover to cover, Sean. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, uh, it was thought-provoking. I laughed. It, it made me think deeply. There's some emotional moments in it. You share a lot about your own journey in life. So you really cover, uh, cover the gamut here. And you know, well, I guess one of the central themes of the book is you're covering who you would consider to be some bold ones, like people like Cardi B, of course, uh, and Drake are some of your favorites. I know that you're big into pop culture, but I thought maybe where we would start, what was the criteria for coming up with the bold ones? Like, what is a bold one? <laughs> um, great question. To me, to me, a bold one is not somebody who is the greatest in their craft. 
the bold one is not the person that achieves ultimate excellence. Th those are not those to me are not descriptors. To me, a bold one is somebody that um, is changes the status quo. That they are they are walking into their arena and they change how the game is played. And to me, that is the criteria of the bold one. That that's what I've been really obsessed about. And I wanted to take the idea of innovators and disruptors and, um, you know, uh, di dissect what it means to be a bold one. And what I what I did in this book was I, I tried to show all these different ways that you can be a bold one. You don't have to go off and be an entrepreneur or or a, or a founder. You can work within a company. You don't have to be ultimately confident and and to go into every situation and have the decisions um, at your fingertips. Um, I wanted to showcase all the different ways of changing the status quo. And the criteria of actually making the book were just, you know, I, I'm just a student of uh, of, of history, uh, of pop culture, of, of sports, of um, science and, and, and politics. I, I, I am so curious around the, about the world. And I wanted to um, highlight people that really changed the status quo within their little field, within their little industry. Um, and that's what I really wanted to do in the book. And so the people that you're talking about in the book or, or just in the world at large, there's something inside of them <clears throat> that makes them follow their unique voice, right? There's something that for whatever reason, they can't rest until they do the thing. And I, and I, and I think a common thread amongst innovation is that it often comes from some sort of pain or discomfort. So then like, what do you think is the difference between the people that harness that pain and discomfort to become bold versus folks that don't do anything at all? You're absolutely right that um, the, 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 there, is a, there is a big difference there. And I, and I feel that when it comes to the bold ones, I, I, I feel that there are so many individuals that they are, they're just, they're, they're curious about the world. They are taking advantage of these opportunities um, of, of disruption. They are using tragedy to, um, you know, you know, create their next, um, you know, adventure. And so I, the, the only thing I would say around the characteristic of, of, of the bold ones is really that these are individuals that are, they're, they're constantly looking, they're constantly searching, they're constantly exploring, and they're hungry. And, and many of them use the opportunities of defeat, tragedy, uh, and whatever it might be, um, to get to the next level. Um, and you can do that in so many different ways. And I think in the book, we show all these different um, innovators and how they've gone off and, and, and done that. And ultimately, um, you know, if you, if you remain, um, you know, in the status quo, I believe that this, that's the dangerous place to be, uh, to be in the middle, to be mediocre, to stand still. Um, maybe it was, uh, uh, you know, you could have done that in the past, but today, like 2023, it, to me, that is the most dangerous place to be. So I believe that the most important people uh, moving forward, have, you have to be bold. You have to be brave. Um, and um, yeah, in, in the book, we outlined so many ways of doing that. Uh, and it's probably, I mean, it's painfully obvious to you, but maybe not to everybody else. Like, What are some of the challenges or what are some of the drawbacks of staying the same, of embracing the status quo versus disruptive change? To me, it's about, you know, it, it, you can stay the same. You, 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 can, you can stay at the status quo. But the reality is, is that most people that remain stagnant, they ultimately get disrupted. Um, listen, we live in here in Alberta, and I see many industries. I'm not going to point to the to, to the industries in this in this session, but there are a lot of people that have gotten fat, rich, and lazy because they've been successful. And you know, society has told us that once you reach the mountaintop, once you get to the top, you know, enjoy the fruits of your labor. But my belief is that. Uh, you have to continuously um, innovate. You have to continuously try new ways of doing things because ultimately 
um, something, someone, some technology is going to come out of nowhere while you are sit, sitting there pretty and, and eat your lunch. And so you can stay stagnant. You could remain in the status quo. But to me, that's the most vulnerable, vulnerable place to be. Um, um, and we saw that during the pandemic, that the folks that were nimble, flexible, that they were experimental, they were the individuals and the companies that were able to rise through the pandemic. Um, and so I, I would say this, you can stay the same, you can, you can remain in the status quo, or you can constantly be um, innovating and and be nimble enough when the, you know the world changes around you that you're able to pivot and move. Um, and to to me, that's really really important in this uh, very competitive landscape. You mentioned the pandemic, and one of the things about the pandemic is that it removed like the greatest excuse of all time for for remaining stagnant is that I'm not capable or I don't know how. Like literally. We had close to 8 billion people on the planet within the span of two months that all had to ad adapt and change the way that they lived, right? Like people that said, oh, I can never work from home or I can't conduct virtual meetings. Everybody had to change the status quo. And so the excuse that I'm not capable of doing it uh, uh, no, longer, uh, no longer exists. So I, I want to talk, Sean, a little bit. Oh, go ahead. I was going to ask you, you know, Many people had this revelation during the pandemic that uh, I think there were some stats there that 80% uh, or 88% or of the global workforce said that their, their meaning of success has now changed. And, you know, many people had an epiphany of where their life was going or, and the direction that they were going in. I was wondering if you had that epiphany during the pandemic, or if it forced you to change your behaviors or the way that you look at your business? I think it, it changed in a lot of ways. And I mean, I think, I think personally, it gave me a lot of courage. And I, and I think, uh, mm. because our business was, our business was, uh, was pretty adversely affected in the, and literally in the first month. And so I think collectively and then, and then personally, I think just I started to say to myself, well, if, if our business might not survive this trauma that, that it's going through right now, I want to make sure I go down on my own terms. I don't want to sort of die with my voice inside of me. And I wanted to be as useful as I could to other people. And so the pandemic for me was really overcoming the fear of not having anything meaningful to say. Uh, the fear, the, the imposter syndrome, I was at battle with that more than I ever have been and overcoming that battle and sort of winning that battle. And I, I wouldn't, as weird as this might be to say, if, if we could have nobody adversely affect in term, affected in terms of their personal health, in hindsight, like I wouldn't take the pandemic back because it's meant so much in terms of creativity, reinvention, rejuvenation, excitement. Uh, I feel more alive today than I think like I was in a mindset before the pandemic of preserving what we had, just like you said. And, and we all get to that point in life where you want to it becomes more about protecting what you've earned as opposed to going after something that you covet. And never mind the pieces around like it's it's troublesome enough to stay where you're at in terms of the threat of being disrupted or becoming irrelevant if you cling to the status quo. But I like to flip that on, around a little bit and say the way to live a meaningful life is to constantly live in discomfort, to constantly be pursuing mm -hmm. something. And that's one of the, 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 from a business standpoint and a mindset standpoint, the pandemic has been a wonderful catalyst to remind all of us that that is such a, an important part of a meaningful life. Now, I, I, I want to make sure that I come back to that, though, and just say that um, the pieces of the pandemic, obviously, that I wish never occurred would you know, the, the, the death and the illness and all of the health-related pieces. Uh, if we could find a way to go through a catalyst like that for rejuvenation without it being a health crisis, uh, I would take that in a second. Uh, but we can't take that back. It is what it is. So we have to figure out how do we, how do we use that moving forward. And I think that was a great question, Sean, but I think that's kind of how I've used it personally. Well, and I'm inspired that it was a, it was a catalyst for you. Um, and, and for somebody that's been working with innovators and trying to get people to adopt digital 
you know, we talk a lot about digital transformation and and adopting new tech and adopting new ways of doing things. Like I was actually inspired by the pandemic because to me, it actually burst the bubble. You know, finally, people realized that they needed to change. Finally, people realized that they needed to adopt digital. It was a great bubble that bursted. And I see, saw so many organizations that I, I work with that they literally like switched the light and they were they were uh, doing things that they previously said that they never would be able to do, or it would take six months or a year or, or um, you know, longer to do. Um, and so I was inspired by what people accomplished. And from a, so from an innovation standpoint, um, it was incredible to see and just to see the innovations. And, and I was inspired by seeing everybody else's innovations. Um, I'm just somebody that's always curious and, and hungry to see how people change and pivot and move. And um, it was, uh, it was really, really cool to see. Yeah, it was, I, I know. And I think, I think that was a, uh, that was a great discussion there. And uh, I totally agree. It was like every single day you were seeing something from somebody that you hadn't seen before. And I mean, not only did it inspire you to reach for greater heights, and you were a, you were a big force for so many people, myself included, in the pandemic, uh, but it also allowed you to build on their ideas, right? Which is such a fundamental part of innovation is taking somebody else's concept and just finding a way to tweak it and make it your own or put your, yeah. put, put your own unique spin on it. Uh, Sean, I know that there's going to be a lot of people tuning in today that are sitting on something, right? A great idea, some kind of a risk that they want to take. Uh, some kind of an initiative that they are just trying to find uh, the courage uh, to go forward with it. And I want to try as much as we can to leverage some of your insights, uh, some of your research, some of your tools to show them how to get started. So if there are people tuning in right now thinking like, geez, I, I embrace the concept of being a bold one. I've read Sean's book or I'm going to. What are some things that people could do to start to take some small steps in the direction of becoming a little bit more bold? Yeah, no, I love that. I love that. Um, th th this to me is one of the number one questions is how do, how do you get started? And I, I fundamentally believe it's it's finding the smallest problem that you are facing and or the small smallest problem that you are trying to solve um, and, and, and frame that within a very small experiment, very small team, very small sprint, and see how you can move the needle. I think that's number one. I think number two is that what many people get wrong, and I highlighted this in the book around the bold ones, is in the last chapter around um, disrupting a culture, which is how do you create a narrative? How do you create a story around what you are doing? Um, the reality is, is that today we are just in the we're consumed with content people ideas um we're constantly distracted it's it's you know some people might be watching this now they they, they, they i don't know who knows what they're doing they may be on twitter they might be on tiktok the world is so noisy and to be able to persuade to be able to um get people along your journey and be part of your movement um and and create that momentum with you, I think is so important today. I believe that that might be even more important than the idea in itself is to create momentum around it. So how can you tell better stories and narratives around what you are doing? And then ultimately, um, I believe in this idea of, you know, uh, the, the, like a fan base of one or a follower of one. It's just getting one more person involved in your journey or your or your movement and finding that champion within your organization or your or uh, you know somebody that aligns with your mission uh, around the problem that you're trying to solve. Um, it, it it will make your your journey a little less lonelier. Um, so those are some of the you know the the the, the ideas of of how to how to start. And it's funny because I, I, I've been talking to my friends about this. You know, they, they want, somebody asked me a question, like if you were to like summarize all of management thinking into one sentence, I would say that it's just the Nike slogan, which is just do it. Um, may, maybe we could just wrap every single book up that we've ever read and just put it into that one line because it's just a matter about going and doing it. And I think that, you know, it's funny because I was trying to find a through line around all the bold ones. I was trying to find a through line of all the people that I highlighted, all the innovators that I've worked with. What is the through line to everyone? And the only thing that I could see is that really that the, the most dangerous people, and I say this in my keynotes and, and, um, 
uh, and it's a it's a line that has uh, impacted many people is that the most dangerous person in the room is the person who's most afraid but bold enough to move forward. Um, like do it scared. And to me, that is probably this through line that has um, th that 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 I've noticed across every bold one throughout history is to do it scared. Just do it, but do and do it scared. Um, so that's what I'd say to that. If it's not, it's not big enough. I, I sometimes wonder if you kind of got to dip your toe in the pool a little bit though, too. And, and it's like exposure therapy. Yeah. Exposure therapy. And I, and I, and I believe in that too. You know, it, that, that's why the idea of taking a very small problem with a very small experiment, um, is your way of dipping your toe. And to me, it's nonchalant. You know, many people, um, when they're within an organization, the reason why they don't want to try something new is because, um, other people might think it's too big or too scary or too risky. And so if you can frame something in a very nonchalant way and create momentum around it, um, I think that's how you get ideas across within an organization. Well, and you you did that. You lived that. I mean, you right out of university, uh, Sean, you joined one of the big four consulting firms at Deloitte. You started doing things very differently. How, how did you build a community within Deloitte of allies versus instead of adversaries? To me, um, you know, it's funny, like nobody, no, I didn't call myself the innovation guy. There was nobody that, that uh, I, like I didn't call myself the innovation guy. Nobody, um, nobody put me on an innovation team. But what I started to do was to run projects differently. In, in very small ways to start, right? You would incorporate different technologies. You'd incorporate different ways of doing things, uh, you know, crowdsourcing, use drones, behavioral economics, behavioral science, incorporate that in, your, in the projects. And over time, what I did was I just built this muscle. I built the muscle of taking very small risks. I built the muscle of what I call being bold. And over time, as you create this muscle, more and more people around you start to believe that you can do hard things. More and more clients believe that you are uh, capable of doing hard things. And slowly over time, people point to you and be like, that's the, that's the innovation guy. I'm like, what is that? What do you mean? What do you mean when I'm the innovation guy? And over time, you know, that becomes your brand because it's not about your designation or your title or or anything. It's the work. People see the work. And so that's how I really built a muscle around um, innovation is by just starting small. And then over time, you gain the trust and you gain the resources of others to do harder things. Um, and so that was kind of the trajectory. Well, and it makes me think a little bit about um, begging for forgiveness instead of asking for permission. And I, I have to wonder though, Sean, and going back to your own experience, like I think there are things that are maybe non-negotiable in terms of being a good employee. And then there's areas where maybe you feel like you can take some creative liberties. Like how, how did you or try to figure out where that balance was? Like where you kind of had to do the tried and true process where, as opposed to other areas where it was a bit more of a playground or you could get away with maybe pushing the envelope. Well, I, I, I was lucky. I was part of a large organization. So in a, I guess in a large organization, you, um, I, I, I don't know. I feel like you have more freedom in a sense, because there's just so many, there's just so many people. There's so many numbers. Um, um, it gives you, 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 there's less of a microscope on you in that sense. Um, and so I definitely took advantage of that. So circumstance was, uh, you know, favorable for me, but, uh, you know, to me, it was always about um, doing something radically better than what the firm could produce or what the company, you know, the company that you're in could produce. And every time that I would push the line or somebody might push back on me, I said, listen, if you can produce something or your team can produce something fundamentally better than this, 10 times better than this, or not, not even 10 times, just even better than this, um, then... The, I, you know, I'll stand down at the end of the day. Um, let's go back to what our goals are, which are to, you know, make sure that our clients are, are, are happy at the end of the day. And they're, and they're actually achieving their visions and the goals. 
Um, and so there are, there are definitely times where I got pushback, but I also had to stand my ground because a lot of the times when people, they push back, it's because they're coming from a, a place of uh, a fear. They don't know how somebody else is going to react. They're, they're coming from a place of, I've never seen this before. And so if you can convince them or persuade them that this might be a better path. And if you can get other champions along the way, like I, I, I did, one of the secrets is that every time I would start something new, I would get co-conspirators um, around me to believe in what I was doing, to, uh, to persuade them that I was along a, 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 uh, you know, the, the, the right path. And so when there was pushback, I would have you know, some folks around me that would have my back. So that's like one of the secrets of of trying to push your ideas forward is to find champions around you. And, uh, um, you know, it's funny because um, I guess the, the other sort of secret is that I learned is that everyone loves a little bit of status. What does that mean? You know, people may not know what you are doing, but if they can get credit along the way of doing something that's innovative, then they're then they're more likely to signal to others that they're trying something new. Um, and it's a it's a it's an elegant behavioral hack that um, yeah allows you to try cool new ways of doing things. And so I, I would recommend people to try that. Give people credit and status, even though they don't need it or they don't they don't yeah. deserve it. Wow. said a lot there, Sean. That's really profound. I mean, very early on, and, and you were calling that story, one of the things that really stood out was with this notion of kind of being like undeniably exceptional, like just delivering phenomenal work through some of your experiments. It's like you just are too good. You can't be denied, right? Like the firm, yeah. the firm would be silly to put a damper on your ideas. This idea of co-conspirators, that shows up in a lot of different realms, actually, is when you've got an idea or you're trying to create an, a movement or an initiative, try to spend some time with some early adopters so it's not just you trying to push it forward. Now, that, that I have to admit, though, that last piece that you said there about allowing other people to perhaps take a little bit of credit and gain some status for something that wasn't their idea, that's pretty high order thinking. I mean, you really have to be in control of your ego to let that one go. And I... I'm wondering if part of the trick there is trying to focus more on the outcome and the purpose of your clever or creative idea more than who gets the credit. I mean, that, that might be a way to sort of trick the ego into being a bit more silent, but I could see that would be a hard one. Now, Sean, I want to talk about some other concepts from the book that stood out. And there's a lot. We're not going to get to all of them today. But one of them was this idea of finding like obviously bad ideas that are actually good ideas. And that's useful for innovation. <laughs> I'd like to understand that a little bit better. Yeah. Well, if you want to find innovative ideas, I think the best place to find them are, number one, with the weirdos, um, the folks in their basement, the folks in the garages, the folks in their subreddits and the discords and, you know, you know the weird areas of the internet or offline. Um, and for, for many people, they might sound like terrible or bad ideas. But, uh, you know, that's where you that's where you find the people that are passionate. That's where you find the people that are doing things differently. Um, and it's funny because on the flip side to that, when I when I would often go to organizations and, you know, we'd have these brainstorming meetings, what, what would usually happen is that all the all the mediocre ideas would be at the table and all the crazy ideas, the bold ideas would be on the ground floor. They, they would, you know, people would be like, ah, oh, that's too crazy. But those are the ideas that will give you the 10x improvement. The problem is, is that when we get in a room with each other, um, we are, I don't know if it's an insecurity or we don't want to look like an idiot. We, we, we have this defensive decision-making that comes to play and we often throw away the ideas that are obviously bad, but those might be the best ideas. Um, and so uh, that's why I encourage leaders and organizations to you know, embrace some of those bad ideas because those are the ideas that might give us um, you know, a 10X improvement. Yeah, there's an awful lot of motivation to not only protect the status quo, but for personal security. 
That could come in the form of job security as an example, right? Or status security. You mentioned status earlier. Yeah. I mean, we show we see that show up with the groups that we work with all the time is as soon as there becomes this notion that we might do something different that could render somebody else's former good idea less relevant or irrelevant, people start to question yeah. their place on the team, right? I mean, that's one of the reasons that Kodak uh, killed the technology for the digital camera and they had it right in their grip, right? And uh, so we see, it, we see it throughout history. It takes a special kind of leadership team to fight through that complacency or that protecting of security to embrace some of those ideas. So I, I feel and, and, I, and I feel and let's be honest that many people don't want to make a bold decision because they don't want to look like an idiot. They don't want it to impact their job security or their status. Um, and that's why people will pay uh, you know, an exorbitant amount of money to pay for consultants to come in just so that they can point to them and be like, they made that, they made that decision, uh, not me. And so we, we do, we do all these irrational things in order to, uh, you know, prevent us from looking like an idiot. And it's like, you know, a silly example, because I'm a basketball fan is that it, there, there's so many basketball players. They are terrible at free throw shots. I look at Shaq or Shaq. Ben Simmons, <laughs> you know, if, if they, if they only learned how to shoot underhanded, which is a statistically higher percentage of, of shooting a basketball uh, or free throw, and just adopted that new practice of shooting it, then they would probably increase their, their percentages. Yet the reason why they don't want to do it, even though it's probably a better decision for them, is because they don't want to look like an idiot. And... Um, Actually, I think Shaq even said, like, I, I would never do that because even though he was, you know, one of the greatest players of all time, he could have been the greatest, but he didn't choose to take that decision because he didn't want to look like a joke. Yeah, well, that, that makes sense. And so let's follow that. Let's keep following that, that train of thought. Not looking like an idiot, not want, wanting to avoid looking like a fool. But the other piece that comes out, Sean, when you start to take more initiative in your life and be a little bit more bolder is critics. Critics are everywhere, and uh, it is easier to have exposure to those critics right now than it ever has been in the history of the world. There's actually no escape from it unless you throw your phone uh, under the bed for the day. How does a person shut the critics out or learn to leverage that for motivation? Uh, I'm just so curious how you have done that in your life and maybe how you have seen other people do it. Even some of the folks in the book had to do that all the time. Like They were laughed at for their ideas but they persevered. How does a person shut the critics out? There's a chapter in a book called Disruption is a Joke. And it, it, it goes back to this idea that every single disruption or disruptor always starts as a joke. And then eventually the joke is really on us. Um, growing up um, in a South Asian household, um, and, and I think many people from an immigrant household, household have heard this line, which is, what will people say? It's um, it's the constant critic in your house. It's like, why are you doing this? You know, what will the community say? What will your, our friends say? And so it prevents us from from making, you know, decisions that we want to make in life. And I've had to grapple this my entire life. I mean, I, mean, I still hear it today, but ultimately, I've come to appreciate. I've come to appreciate the line, "What will people say?" Because to me, it it, it means that. Um, if people are talking about me, then that means that I'm doing something that's disruptive. I'm doing something that is getting attention, especially in a world where attention is so hard to get. And so um, I've, I've come to embrace the term, what will people say? Because I've also realized that really, really no one is really thinking about us that much, right? Re really people don't care about us that, that much. And so um, those two things uh, are you know, near and dear to my heart. And I believe that, you know, part of the reason why people don't want to become innovators is because really they're afraid of what people will say. And so what we've th seen throughout um, history, and, 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 and this is what I really highlight in the bold ones, that most of them and, and the vast majority of them um, do it, do their thing without um, listening to the critics. critics. And they, they embrace the fact that they're, that they might be talking about them. So, 
yeah, that's what I'd say at that. Yeah, I could, I could see a person using that as leverage, as motivation, right? Prove them wrong, which only lasts for so long. It's, I think, I think you got to be more compelled towards what you're trying to achieve and the change you're, you're trying to make. But I think a little bit of motivation. I mean, Tom Brady fueled that. Michael Jordan, I mean, he was, a, a, he was on display on the last dance. I mean, look how he fueled yeah. uh, the motivation of the critics. I mean, he even made up confrontations that didn't even exist. And he, you know, <laughs> he, he did that for 20 years. Uh, so, Sean, there's this other piece in the book that uh, has really got me thinking. Uh, so, for example, when I put out a tweet, if I get more than 25 likes on it, I get pretty excited. And it's kind of a random occurrence when that happens. But in, your, in the book, you talk about this concept of hot streaks. And that a hot streak is not necessarily something that's just left up to chance. You can engineer these for yourself. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what does a hot streak look like and what are some things a person can actually do to make these happen in their life? Yeah, this is one of my favorite concepts of the book. Um, how do you engineer a hot streak? I am so fascinated with this topic. And I feel like I, I, I wish this was another book that I wrote, which is analyzing people's hot streaks. Um, there's a great piece of research that came out in 2021 with um, an individual named Deshun Wang and, and his team of scientists where they, they analyzed all these prolific innovators throughout history and they use artificial intelligence to analyze, uh, you know, some of the best film directors, artists, creatives. And what they realize is that the reason why these individuals have hot streaks, the reason why they are so prolific is because they went through these periods of what I will call wastefulness. They they, they wasted their time. They, they, they went through years of exploration and experimentation and they played. And then at some point they put it all together. They exploited their, their learnings and that's how they generated their hot streaks. The other thing that was interesting about this study was that, um, you know, the, the, the reason why most people have one hot streak is, is actually what we talked about before, is that you get rich, fat, and lazy based on you know, what you were successful at. And it's very difficult for people to have another hot streak. And to have another hot streak, you have to continuously explore. You have to be able um, to uh, you know, remain the rookie and to continuously be hungry. And that's how you generate your next hot streak. And so in the book, I, I profile um, some individuals that um, are having a hot streak now, or have had have had a hot streak, and you know whether it's you know uh, Judd, you know I look at somebody like Judd Apatow. Now Judd Apatow, in the early two thousands, had this unbelievable string of of movies that came out. You know, um, Super Bad. Um, uh, uh, you just. It, you just remember that era of Will Ferrell and you know all those guys, uh, Jonah Hill, and all of them being in in Apatow's movies. And what Apatow did in the '90s was he he explored. He was doing stand up comedy. He was directing. He did you know Geeks and Freaks. Um, he he did all these different things. And at some point, he put it all together um, with his string of movies. And it's interesting that now Judd Apatow's an amazing director. Um, he hasn't been able to replicate that hot streak and sustain that hot streak, hot streak, because maybe the the market changed and and maybe people changed. But um, you know, it's interesting that he was able to have these hits, 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 hits. And how was he able to do that? So um, I'm just fascinated with people and and uh, these strings. I don't I, I like. I I don't know if you've seen this in your life or other people that you have observed, but this ability for them to just have hit after hit after hit or be in this like this this hot zone um it's it's really incredible yeah staying relevant it's very hard and like i mean i have so much admiration for anybody that's just trying uh and then the next level up would if you have a window of success but to be able to maintain it or sustain it I, the shania twain documentary that just came out i mean i forgot how wildly successful she was over a period of you know 12 to 15 years, I mean, just shattered all kinds of recording artist records. And so she was, she had to do that. And I'm also fascinated by stories we can take from the wild. I, I learned recently that uh, insects, for example, like ants, like carpenter ants and probably army ants, when they've got abundant food sources, they're still sending out exploratory foot soldiers to find other sources of food, even though that there, mm. there, there's no quantifiable reason why they should be exploring but they still are. And then every time they find another food source, they drop, uh, they drop little scents on the way back so that they can find the trail 
to that food source if their existing one runs out. And it reminded me a little bit about hot streaks as I was reading your book. And I, and I think that's the key you hit on it is that we got to find little ways to just be firing little experiments, even though we might be really successful uh, as it stands in our lives uh, today. 100% agree. And I, you know, admittedly, I feel like I'm in a, I'm in a hot zone right now. And while I'm in the hot zone, I think to myself two things. And it's, it's like a, it's, it's a dichotomy because I, number one, I want to double down. I want to make sure that I, I, you know, maximize the fruits of my labor now. At the same time, I'm just hungry. I'm curious. I want to explore. I want to try new ways of doing things. And so th there's, there's always this tension and, um, because I want to have my next hot streak, right? I, what, what, or how do I sustain this one? So there's like a little bit of, you, you never really know, right? There's, there's a little bit of intuition. But I think um, the idea of continuously exploring your passions um, is something that I've seen, uh, you know, it, it's really how you have your best life. It's, it's to continue to be an explorer um, and to be curious around the world. And I want my kids to see that dad is, you know, 80 years old, but he's still curious. He's still learning. He's still reading. He's still, he's still seeing what other people are doing. Like I, I to me, that's really important for my kids to see that. Yeah. And Sean, I know this is real, is certainly related to this, to this piece of the conversation, but a fundamental question around innovation is where is the world going? And so how do the best innovators have those answers? Like I think of Steve Jobs and I think like, how did he know that the world was going to want their life in a handheld device and that he, we were going to want our music uh, to get out of Discmans and Walkmans and into the palm of our hands? Like, how do you figure out where the world's headed? If I knew where the world was headed today, I, I would, I, I would, I, I would be there. Otherwise, uh, but I'm here with you right now. So I, I um, it's a, such a difficult question um, to obviously. I, I asked this question in the book, and this is something I'm asking um, all the time. I think one of the best ways of trying to figure out where the world is going is to not be so romantic about the rabbit hole that you are in, but really pay attention to what's happening across every field, whether it's you know, finance and media, entertainment and politics and beyond. Um, it's seeing what people are interested in and consuming. I, I feel like sometimes when you act, ask people, um, it's not as great. It's, it's not as it's not as good as actually observing people I mean, in the wild. And so if you really want to see where the world is going, you have to be what I call a deep generalist, um, a somebody with range, somebody that has an understanding of what's happening across different domains. Um, and uh, this is how you prepare yourself for um, and 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 really you know find out where where the world is going. Um, so I I try to do that in my own personal life. Like I am just curious and interested about every single sector. I mean, if you see the 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 podcast that I li listen to, I mean it, it's it just it's in every single direction. Uh, my interests are about history and pop culture and, and science and, and economics and beyond. And I'm trying to sense where the future is because I, I have no idea. I can't tell you what's going to happen tomorrow, but at least what we've been seeing is that the lines are blurring across every single domain. And um, if you just look up and you listen and pay attention, um, it's probably a better indicator of, of, of where the world is going. Sean, what are the downsides of a disruptive culture. And a, like a, a more shallow example is just because we can build a fridge with an iPad on it and I can change the temperature from my phone from an airplane, should we? And, and the other part of this though that I wonder about, because I experienced this myself, uh, if, we would have, if we were having this conversation five or six years ago, I would tell you that one of my greatest fears was being disrupted. That something wonderful that we had built as an organization was could be you know, uh, blindsided and, and, and rendered irrelevant. And I used to worry about that in an unhealthy way. The pandemic changed that for me. So now I kind of think, well, if, you know, if anything was going to put us out of business, it was going to be that. So we're survivors and we'll figure it out. So I have a lot more confidence now to ride the wave of change 
at least I think, as I feel today. But I do wonder if there are some unintended negative consequences of a disruptive mindset or culture. It depends. It depends on how you frame it. I believe that having a disruptive mindset is healthy. Um, there's a great, there's a great line um, called "memento mori" uh, that the Romans used. It's 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 called it's it's remember you will die. That's what it it, it means, and it's this idea that um, actually the 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 one of the origins is that when the Roman general would parade down the street um, after Rome's military victories, there would be a slave in the back of the chariot that would whisper in the ear of the general, memento mori, which is remember you will die. Um, and it's to remind the general that life is short. It's to remind the general that even on their highest day, the day that bestowed them the most status, that um, tomorrow is not given. And I believe that having a disruption mindset is this idea that um, not remember you will die, but it's really that disruption is inevitable. That this is this will not last forever. What is successful today may not be successful tomorrow, and I think that's a healthy thing because if you can remind yourself that you will get disrupted every day, it's a reminder that you need to continuously innovate and be nimble and flexible and experimental. And and to me, um, rem uh. I think what's more detrimental is remaining in the status quo. Um, it's remaining in the middle. To me, that's the most dangerous place to be today. And so if you can continue to remind yourself that this is not forever, then it allows you to explore. It allows you to, um, um, to, to be curious around the world, uh, you know, about the world. And so I think it's actually a healthy thing to remind yourself um, that you will be disrupted. Um, but, but most people think as disruption as this negative thing, or most people look at disruption as a, as a, a, of a, a pessimistic uh, uh, concept. But, but to me, it's, it's really healthy to think about death every single day because it's a, it's a reminder that, that life is amazing and you should continuously explore and try new ways of doing things. Yeah, memento, memento mori. I'm going to remember that. I'm going to write that down. That's a great, that's a great story. I mean, I think it's further evidence why people should do whatever they can to fall in love with their craft, to fall in love with the process rather than being focused on the outcome or the destination. Because I think if you're focused on the craft, if you're focused on the, the habits and the process, it's going to lead you naturally to change. As you learn more about yourself, you learn more about the thing that you're interested in. You're going to be way more uh, familiarized with trends in the marketplace, I think, as you do that. So that's uh, no, that's a that's a great way to, um, great way to phrase it, Sean. I want to uh, I want to give some advice now to your former employers at Deloitte that maybe they could have embraced you a little bit more <laughs> as you became disruptive. Because here's here's the story. I hear it on both ends. I, I hear I hear I'm kind of that in that age group now where I. I'm still young enough to be uh, still in that younger category of conversation, but I'm old enough that I'm I'm now thinking about the way that we used to do things back when I went to school. So I'm in this certainly all this this uh, precarious age, and on the one hand, I hear managers talk about younger people coming into the workplace and not having respect for the way that things have been done. So they're coming in guns a blazing, and I'm sure they have great intentions. But they're ruffling some feathers because there doesn't seem to be respect for the generations that have come before them. And in a lot of cultures, like being old is equated with wisdom. And in North American society, especially, we seem to like treat elderly people as though they're they're unqualified or or unfit for societal contribution. And I, I have to think there's a bit of a middle ground here. But I wonder if you could comment a bit on how can the generational gap be more productively meshed yeah well first of all you know the 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 uh, the, the the piece around deloitte i i um i uh, i you know i love deloitte and i love working there and actually the reason why i left there was because i was part of this new breed of folks that um you know i i started to gain my own power because i i was able to create my own ip my own assets my own content and I think I was part of this new world order where there are individuals that are creating power through other methods. Um, and mainly it's it's through content 
and and creating their brand in new ways, which is uh, this, which is actually part of the reason why I wrote the book. Um, and so they they couldn't. They, and most organizations today, not even them, like I, the majority of companies today have no idea how to how to compensate, how to how to frame, how to how to keep these individuals that are are, are stars. And I think that's going to be a, a problem over the next decade. Um, to your point around the wisdom piece, um, I think there's two sides to it. Number one is that many leaders um, don't have a rookie mindset. They, they don't understand that the world is changing around them. They don't understand that there are new ways of doing things. There are new technologies that are coming out that will completely disrupt them. And there are young people that have not spent a, you know, a lick of time within their organization, but they, 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 that's why you hire ambitious, creative, innovative individuals to, to help push you along. So as a leader, you have to continuously have this rookie mindset. At the same time, um, you know, expertise is, uh, can be very valuable. Uh, being an expert in a particular industry allows you um, to see uh, problems that perhaps other people that are, are, are new to the industry can't see and, and, and vice versa. So, of course, the, the marriage has to be symbiotic. You have to be able to, as a leader, to, to be vulnerable. You have to be, as a leader, to step down and be a rookie. And if you're joining an organization, of course, you have to respect um, the organization that you are part of. Um, you know, part of being a bold one is not to come in guns blazing and to change everything, uh, you know, right away. It's actually to work with others. It's to build momentum um, around your particular ideas. It's to get the old guard on board around what you are doing. Otherwise, you're not going to go far at all. You're not going to be able to be a bold one unless you have people, um, uh, you know, in the backseat. So, um, there has to be a marriage between the between both of them, but I'm gonna I'm actually gonna put more um, I'm gonna be a little bit more critical around the the old guard because what I see most often is that the old guard is not willing to get let go of their status of the seniority of their expertise around how an industry works and it, it, it's upon them to to embrace new ideas. Um, uh, so I and 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 I I I guess I disagree that the 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 younger generations coming in and being disrespectful, um, perhaps that happens. I I don't see it as as often. Yeah, well, I appreciate your perspective on that, and it it is something that I hear people talking about a lot. And the first my response always but when I, I well, I was going to say Sean, what I my my comment back always is is uh, how curious are you? Are you leading with curiosity or not? Are you leading with curiosity or judgment? Because I I find that. Uh, as soon as people start to reflect on that question, they realize, ah, you know what? The problem's with me. It's not that uh, it's not the new upstart uh, hotshot uh, recruit that we hired out of university. It's me. I'm judging, and I'm not taking that step to try to understand where they're coming from. Well, I was going to ask you because, you know, you're, you're you're certainly a leader that obviously leads with curiosity. You're you're a leader that is willing to be vulnerable, and I think. My, my, my belief is that the most innovative leaders in the world are the most vulnerable. The, the, the folks that can step back and say, I don't know. They're the leaders that can step back and say, help me. Um, did, you, did you have this realization of that's how a leader I should be? Or did that happen over time? How has your leadership journey changed um, to where you are now, where you are? Um, now, I haven't, I haven't worked for you, but um, from, from my from your discussions that you have and 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 some of the things that you put on the world it 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 certainly feels and 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 looks like that you are a leader that um really not only cares about their people but are vulnerable enough to to let others lead and to empower others to lead so i i want to uh, ask you that yeah so my answer yeah. is that, that that journey that process is is ongoing and will never be done i'm a huge fan of the phrase uh, be better not perfect and uh, and being better doesn't mean a straight line. And so I I'm, I'm, I mess up uh, a lot. I'm fortunate that I work with colleagues that I have deep trust and admiration with, and I think that goes both ways. And so I get a lot of critical feedback from people that I that I care about a lot um, that are colleagues. And I I think that one of the things that has helped me is learning the research about what great leadership looks like. So I'm grateful for people like you. I'm grateful for anybody that has dedicated their life to understanding the nuance, the data, the science. Uh, the patterns and themes that separate great exceptional performance from average and, and, and mediocre. 
And I think my, what I've learned about myself as well along this journey is my self-awareness has certainly gone up. And my default is I want people to do it my way. I want people to do it the way that I've had success with. When somebody has a counterpoint to my opinion, my default is defensiveness. And so I have to work very hard mm. to overcome those things. And, and I think that I'm getting better at that. And now one of the things I think I am, I am really good at though is when I realize I've shown up in a way that was unbecoming, I will, I'll come back and apologize, acknowledge and own it. I still have to work more on my mindset in the moment. That's, that's one of my biggest growth areas for my own personal leadership is to be more in control of my emotions in the moment so that I can turn defensiveness into curiosity. Love it, love it, love it, love it. John, I wanna pull the veil pull uh, off, of, uh, off of you for a second here, if you'll, uh, if you'll allow me. You're known for being so positive, upbeat, optimistic, energetic. What, what sort of things get you down? Uh, what gets me down? Um, you know, I, I, I'm certainly somebody that is an optimist. Uh, I, I do think I, I do trust many people. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's in my nature. Um, you know, certainly when it comes to work, I think what gets me down is that when you work on something really hard, you work on a particular project and, um, for whatever reason, it doesn't come through. It doesn't, it doesn't work out. They put a project to sh on the shelf. Like I experienced that so much within consulting and it, it really gets you down because you're, you're working on something so hard with people and you know, nothing comes out of it. It's like, what am I doing with my life? So that, that certainly, that certainly gets me down. Um, I am somebody that is like, I, I, I think of myself as a, as a good friend and I consider myself somebody that puts a lot of time um, into my, my, my friendship. So, you know, when, when, when people are, you know, they're hurt by something I said, or they're hurt by something that I did. Um, and I know about that, that really, it really, it really nags at me. And so I like, you know, I go over and above to, to try to, whether it's resolve the situation or or really to understand where the, where they're coming from, so that really you know um, gets at me. And there's certain friends where you know maybe they're a little bit more sensitive and you, you, you're a little bit more cautious. But I I really want to make sure that I'm a good friend to folks. Um, yeah, I think I think that's I think that's about it. I think also just having kids changes um, changes your mentality on things. Um, you know, I, I hate to see my kids down on anything. Like, luckily they're, they're pretty optimistic, but you know, if, if I see them down, like that really sort of impacts me and, and obviously trying to um, understand where they're coming from and, and understand why they're down. So yeah, that's what I say that. That's a, that's a very interesting question. Well, I, I, you bring up your kids and I can't help but wonder how much you are at odds or in conflict with yourself about how you're going to parent versus what you know is the best experience to create future generations of disruptors. Like we want to, <laughs> we want to protect our kids and make them safe. And yet exploration and learning uh, from trial and error and screwing up and failing is an essential part of being a bold one. So how does that line up with how you parent? You know, I, there's like a, there was a recently like a, a great Twitter thread that came out and somebody's like, yeah, I'm, be, I'm becoming a new dad. Can I get some advice from like the old dads out there? And it was like a thousand thread deep uh, Twitter thread that I, I just consume. I devoured uh, because the reality is, is that I don't know how to be a great dad. I don't know how to be a great parent. I'm six years into this. I got two kids. I got one on the way anytime now. And I have, I have no idea how to be a great parent. Um, and so, and, but yet I also know where the world is going, um, which is, it, it has to be a world where you have to be innovative and creative and imaginative and, to, and intuitive. Um, and so for me, like, I think when it comes to my kids, I, I think I want them to explore more and, and, and to 
um, you know, be willing to take risks um, and to try new things. Um, you know, to me, that's a general, it, that's a general construct. Um, we, we live in a generation today where we do coddle our kids. Like we're in a society where we have coddled this, the, you know, our, our, our children, um, you know, whether it's um, letting our kids play outside or, you know, walk to school on their own or to do things on their own. Um, I believe that there's a general coddling of society that's that's happening. And I think that's preventing us from being more creative and imaginative. And so I, I have to balance that, right? This is what society thinks and then, you know, where I want my kids to go. So I don't know. Like, I, I don't have a clear definition. I don't know how to do this. And if anybody out there can give me some really great um, parenting advice, I'm always like inhaling it. I'm trying to, 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 to get it. So I, maybe, maybe listen, you're, 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 you're years, uh, a little bit years ahead of me. So tell me, give me some advice. Well, I'm, I am okay with, uh, I'm okay with kids failing. I've been okay with my son failing and learning, learning from those mistakes. I think the biggest challenge for me is, is, you know, no two people will ever want to parent the same, right? And uh, yeah, and and, uh, and so I I was so I'm a single I, parent, I was, I was and single. and uh, so I never I didn't raise my son in the same household, right? We didn't have a nuclear family, and and so there presents some challenge there with having alignment on what the values are and what are some of the rules and the non-negotiables. And I think his mother and I uh, both have good sets of values, and and we have rules of engagement, but they're different. And so I think that's the hardest yeah. thing is trying to get some alignment as you try to co-parent your children is uh, in, in my humble experience. And I don't consider myself an expert in parenting by any, by any stretch. And I don't know if anybody does, but uh, thanks for that, Sean. Hey, the last, last question I have for you. You left Deloitte in 2018. You had built this yeah. wonderful career, started doing your own keynotes. 2019 was, by all accounts, a remarkable year for you. Like you just uh, shot out onto the scene and were gaining notoriety and, and get, I mean, how many keynotes did you deliver in 2019? Uh, probably like, I don't know, 60 or 70 keynotes. Yeah. More than one a week, 2020, 20, you would have been booked more than at any other point in your life. All of a sudden in the middle of March, it's announced that no more live events. And I couldn't let you go without asking you what were those first few days like knowing that everything you were looking forward to in 2020 was no more? Yeah, I love asking people. I love asking people about their March 2020. Um, I was lucky because um, to me, the pandemic was a, it was, it was a tragedy, right? And I learned very early when my father passed away, he, I, he passed away on um, like he was a tax accountant and he had, he passed away right before the tax deadline. And I remember there were all these clients like wondering like, what are we going to do with his taxes? And I remember walking in the, the, the day after my dad died, walking into his office and like kind of, you know, figuring it out, like, you know, handling his business. He had over 200 clients. And that taught me that tragedy can actually be an opportunity, that tragedy um, can spur innovation. And actually when the pandemic hit, um, I continue to have a positive mindset. I, I, I was like, we're going to get through this. We're going to figure some some way out of this. We're going to try to innovate. This is the greatest time to innovate. And so I just went to work. Like I just did what I did with my dad. I, I went to work and um, I'm blessed that I have that mindset that when everything has gone to crap, that you're like, okay, how do I get out of this? How do I innovate? And um, yeah, that's what we did. You know, from a content perspective, like immediately, like in April, we got in a theater um, and we started shooting content and keynotes and you know started doing content in you know during the pandemic when nobody was doing it at a very high quality level and you know we just kind of ran from there and so i just know that when things are down and they will be down again at some point in my life is that 
the best way to approach that is is to get your stuff up and to think how you know how can we do things differently how can we keep moving um and so the tragedy of my father helped me do that and um yeah so that's what i'd say that sean thanks for sharing that uh, when i think of bold ones as i was reading the book and and even prior to that i wouldn't have called them bold ones but i will forever more you know i think of people that challenge the limits that make the impossible possible. I think of people like Roger Bannister, who was the first human being to break the four minute mile barrier. People had tried for centuries and done some really wild things. And eventually the human race just gave up thinking that the, a man was not capable of running a mile in less than four minutes. Roger Bannister did it, and now it's common that high schoolers will do it. And Sean, the reason I, I share that story is uh, forever in my mind, you will be a bold one. And I know I'm not the only one, and because you pushed the limits, and especially in the pandemic, of what people thought was possible. What connection could look like, what adaptation could look like, what reinvention was, and that we could make it out. And the thousands and thousands of people that you helped navigate the pandemic with a more positive mindset uh, will never tell you personally that you did it, but I wanna tell you that you did that for countless people because I know you did it for me. And so I never told you this wow. before, but almost every single day when you would post something, it was a reminder that, oh, we can do more, we can be better. Uh, we don't have to sit and wait for this thing to pass. We can use it and we can leverage it. So lots of things that we did your influence and your courage is sprinkled all over that. And I will always be grateful to you for that. So this has been such a pleasure, Sean, to host you today. I've loved, wow. this, loved this conversation and uh, I'm so proud of you and I'm a cheerleader for you. And I know you're just getting started, but congratulations on everything that you have done so far and <laughs> just keep it going, my friend. Well, thank you so much. Those were some of the kindest words that I've, I've ever heard. And, uh, I, I really appreciate um, you know your support uh, you know over the years and uh, just seeing you grow as a as a leader as an individual and and uh, you know it, it, it's amazing to you know call you a friend now so uh, thank you so much for having me it's an honor truly like what you are doing here and elevating the production and the number the guests that you are having um, it's been, it's been amazing, amazing to see. So, um, truly blessed and honored to be here. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure, Sean. Uh, pleasure. we'll, uh, we'll see you again soon, I'm sure. And in the, uh, in the meantime, I hope everybody listening to this conversation will be encouraged and motivated just to take one tiny step in the direction of their own bold move. And we can't wait to see what you're up to everybody until next time. It's been Jeff Tetz with Sean Canungo on Unleashed. If you enjoyed this episode and found it helpful, don't forget to give us a five-star rating and subscribe to our YouTube channel or wherever your favorite podcasts are found. And if you're part of a leadership team and you know that your organization is capable of even better performance, please reach out to us at unleashresults.com for a conversation and learn more about how we might help unleash the potential of your team and organization.